This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we revisit the ideas of the so-called New Sociology of Education, which were popularized in the 1970s. My guest is Julie McLeod, a professor of curriculum, equity, and social change at the University of Melbourne Faculty of Education. The concern is to, if you like, not take educational problems, but to make them, to understand the social organisation of knowledge. And in that sense, it shifts or is a, frames the sociology of education as very much about the sociology of knowledge and about the ways in which a society and schooling and as an educational institution organises, frames, distributes knowledge. Julie McLeod recently edited a point and counterpoint set of essays for curriculum perspectives that revisit the ideas and debates in the new sociology of education. Julie McLeod, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks very much, Will. It's great to be here. So it's been 50 years or so, I guess I should say, since the work called the new sociology of education gained sort of global prominence, I guess I would say. And usually this is marked by Michael Young's 1971 edited volume entitled Knowledge and Control, New Directions for the Sociology of Education. So can you sort of give us the main argument of that volume? And then we're going to sort of unpack it in this conversation to think about what this new sociology of education is or is not. Yes. So while it, as he says, is an edited volume, it is very much framed by Michael F.D. Young's arguments that are elaborated in the opening chapter. And in that, he spells out quite clearly that the concern is to, if you like, not take educational problems, but to make them, to understand the social organisation of knowledge. And in that sense, it shifts or is a, frames the sociology of education as very much about the sociology of knowledge and about the ways in which a society and schooling and as an educational institution organises, frames, distributes knowledge. And it turns what we might have taken as, you know, seen as taken for granted into objects of inquiry. Now, when we look back on that argument, because of the extensive scholarship deriving from that kind of related set of arguments, that may not seem so surprising. So I think it's important to remind ourselves of what that surprisingness was, as well as recognising, if you like, the forebears to those arguments and the sort of concurrent discussions going on. But I think that idea to interrogate and destabilise things as they seem to be is an important part of that shift of taking sociology of education it's fundamentally about the sociology of knowledge. And were these ideas sort of new and cutting edge? Like, was this the first time that someone or a group of scholars in this collection really said these things? Or, you know, how far back did it go before 1971? Well, I think there are a number of like antecedents to these. Um, one is the, you know, so it's not just the way that knowledge is organised, but the connections to social class and the kind of differential relations of power that organise knowledge. So that the impact of relationship between class and schooling has a longer history. Social stratification studies uh, in the UK and, and the US and, and more broadly, often studying sort of so some of that's ethnographic, but a lot of it was also more quantitative based and looked at you know, like deficits in class. So that's one way in which the question of class inequality and schooling is both brought back, retained in the conversation, but reframed as a question of the way in which schooling itself 
starts to contribute to that. So that's one set of antecedents. And the other, I think, you know, we could go back to, you know, C. Wright Mills when, you know, the sort of social problems, you know, how do you construct social problems? And so I do think so that collides with it. The other third dimension as well is that in the collection you have Bernstein, you have Bourdieu, you have a number of very influential scholars who are working themselves in very cognate arguments about structure, knowledge, power, education. And it is in part the assembling of them under this sign of the new sociology of education, which becomes very powerful. Did that group of scholars use that term, new sociology of education, or was that applied in retrospect? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think Young obviously did, and uh, perhaps it it grew in stature retrospectively, and as it became, in a way, a slightly more solidified way of trying to characterise a far more complex cluster of arguments. It's not something, I mean, I wouldn't want to speak with so much authority, but it's not a kind of way of framing that I necessarily associate with Bourdieu or Bernstein, but they would probably know what it was meaning. You know, they were there at that symposium and And at the time, you know, these scholars working at that moment, how much did they reflect the sort of historical context in which they were working, rather than the connection to the antecedents academically and the the sort of thought progression, but more about how much is this sort of a product of the late 1960s, early 1970s? Well, you know, both part of that zeitgeist, distilling it, crystallizing it in a particular way, and then feeding back into it. So, of course, if we think about that time in schooling, and we go to Australia where I am, but also this was happening in the US and the UK and, and across Europe, you have a great flourishing of alternative schooling about the intersection of democratic possibilities and education, a set of expectations and hopes that schooling might be otherwise, if you like, and that the route to that was through everything from Illich to Freire to, you know, this whole new way of understanding the relationship between power and educational institutions. So they were both, I'd say, capturing that and feeding back into it and in a way giving it a slightly more scholarly legitimacy in a way. But they were not, I think, that relationship between, say, educators and teachers and this work would have, there would have been more synergy. You know, I don't think they would have just come in and I don't think the ideas would have been completely alien to educators at that time. Right. So these were some common ideas that might not have had particular language to talk about what's going on or or they provided a new academic language to sort of talk about what was going on. I think so. I mean, that could be potentially overstating it, but I think that it's not that there was a whole range of notes political developments going on that were complementary. You know, rise of social movements, feminism, uh, social history, labor history, you know, those sorts of things I see as very, as part of that cluster of trying to understand uh, the relationship between power, knowledge, and yeah. And Michael Young was rather young. He was in his 30s, I think. I mean, he's still alive to this day. I had an office, actually, next to him when I worked at UCL. And he would still come in in his 90s uh, or late 80s. And, you know, quite an amazing character in many ways. So I guess, you know, with that background, I guess the question is really about how did that moment 50 plus years ago, how has it shaped the sort of larger field of the sociology of education? And, and, been received today like if you know to what extent are they still are these ideas the new sociology of education still shaping sociology of education are they still new or is it sort of the old sociology of education so to speak i think it has cast a very long shadow in positive and constraining ways 
I think that the questions of class and of power, um, of language, if you're thinking of Bernstein, the classification of knowledge system, of, of the work of Bourdieu and the relationship between school systems and knowledge structures. Habitus is not spoken about extensively in that collection, but essentially that it is that relationship of habitus and field. They have been and continue to be extraordinarily influential, but, you know, they have been beaten about as well. As many people have critiqued, it was a relatively inward-looking, to some nationally inward-looking. It, it There's been not just the new sociology of education, but the whole kind of new left engagement with class and education was blinkered on the whole to other forms of power asymmetries and oppressions, gender, race, all the other social categories of differentiation, but most powerfully being called out for those structuring um, and subjective dimensions of power. And those were arguments being put at the time. The extent to which they ever got much currency, of course, is another matter, but they've been very much part of subsequent reception of those debates. So in what ways was this sort of race and gender and and even, you know, what we today would call global north, right? A lot of these people were coming from mainly Europe, it sounds like. But how much was it about the representation of authors who contributed to the volume con- versus how much was it shaping their thinking about what they were writing about? Like the absence of a gender analysis. I guess, how do you know that that exists or to what extent when you read someone like Michael Young to, you know, from 1970 when you read him today? Like, how much was he blind to all of these ideas, you know? So was it deliberate exclusion or was it just a kind of habitual way of thinking? I mean, I think in the beginning it most likely, it it reads as if it is speaking from the universal subject and the universal place, the unnamed place of England, right? Whereas very specific dynamics of class uh, where those were extrapolated from to be a universalizing conception of class, uh, equally with gender. I think, you know, subsequently those omissions did become more overt and then Pete, but, you know, I have not followed uh, his Young's work enough to understand how he then subsequently responded to it. But I think I wouldn't want to overload that new sociology of education as the only people doing that. <laughs> Even at that time, the new and the old social, social historians, labor historians, all kinds of sociologists were blinkered you know, as part of the feminism itself, as, as we know. Uh, so it was part of that uh, complex political time where hierarchies of power of, and oppression were sort of in play all the time. It's a kind of pre-intersectional moment. Right. And then the, the sort of intersectional moment happens and we start looking at these structures of power and their shaping of knowledge in a, maybe in a more complex way, a more complete way where we, you know, we start seeing things that maybe others have, have missed before. Yeah. And perhaps become, I wouldn't say comfortable, but more aware of the limits of these all-encompassing theories, if you like. So I do think that that's been one of this, you asked earlier about the, the influence of that. And is it, is it still, what have people taken? from it and what are people continuing to engage with today. I think in the same way as we have the structure agency debate continues to dominate consciously or not or if implicitly or explicitly, this the ways in which schooling or educational institutions organize knowledge and structure how we are and then how individuals or people come into schools 
and that correspondence between their orientations and schooling and the way in which schooling is organised, I think that continues to be an extremely influential idea. What you then do with it, how you complicate it, how you situate it, how you, whether you just generalise from all people, or you look more closely at how different groups and diff- people with different locations are better able to navigate that. I think those nuances and complexities are more overt. So, okay, so one of the changes over the last 50 years is that all, we might be looking at similar issues, but we are allowing for more nuance and situatedness in the places and spaces that we might be doing this research and thinking about these topics. You know, you bring up a really interesting point in this article or short little snippet that you write about in this collection. And it's about how the you sort of, when you're writing this piece, you kept misspelling the title. And instead of saying new directions for the sociology of education, you kept writing the new directions of the sociology of education. I think that's right. Of And you sort of comment that there's this subtle slip, but it's actually quite important because it sort of shows this particular confidence of the authors to, you know, and I think this is what you were saying, you know, it's like that taking the individual subject, one subject, it's universal, and they're they're confidently sort of saying, this is what the future looks like for the sociology of education. And I found that quite an interesting sort of reflection on your own part, because it sort of shows a difference from perhaps today, which is more nuanced and specific and not as, let's say, general and confident. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I've just checked. I always thought it was New Directions in the Sociology of Education, so that this was a collection of essays that was somehow giving an account of that or documenting it or historicizing those directions which were already there, if that makes sense. But this instead was a collection of authors setting forth in a more manifesto style way what those new directions were. So they were providing you know, a roadmap, a set of exemplars, a set of concepts, a way and ways of thinking that they felt collectively forecast or foreshadowed where sociology of education should be going. So it does have a very strong normative positioning. And, you know, I think that's, it is that try, catchy, trying to understand, if you like, the sensibility of that moment is intriguing to say the least. Uh, and quite a different sensibility to the contemporary uh, approach, at least in my experience, and it's in part why I was quite interested to go back. So how do you see it today then? Like, how do you see the field of sociology of education today in that, you know, in that respect? Well, in many ways I've worked across sociology and history of education now for many years, it seems. I feel less and less confident myself (laughs) But I know, in fact, what characterizes it because it it does seem less defined by shared procedural, methodological, or conceptual debates. And I'm for better or worse, right? I'm not saying that's a, I'm not lamenting that, and I'm not celebrating. I'm just trying to characterize that, and is in part why I, with the, my co-authors um, in this piece, wanted to look again to try and capture that earlier time as a way of understanding what it was like now. So I think huge influence across research, not only in the sociology of education, but in the social sciences writ large, is that permeating influence of what intersectionality means empirically and conceptually. It's not at all straightforward. Uh, And then that impact of a concept of situated knowledge and the partiality of knowledge, partiality of perspective, the standpoint, or the huge impact of feminism. So you would, I think, 
what we have, uh, we don't always remember or acknowledge that a lot of that questioning of authoritative positioning and universalizing the statements was coming from feminism. It wasn't the only, uh, only intellectual, political, ethical tradition, but it was an extremely powerful one and very, very influential in education research and in sociology of education. So I think it's also been about trying to reinstate that as in when we look at the history of influential educational ideas because there's traces of that in the way in which we think about education in the present, but it's not always tethered to some of those um, forebears. It's like we, we don't want to give too much power to the book from 1971, Knowledge and Power, or Knowledge and Control, right? We, by doing that, we're sort of, we're, we are missing so many of the other important pieces of work that have shaped the field as we know it today. And I think that's a really important insight even if some of those other books weren't written as confidently. Yes, precisely. And, of course, we have, you know, since, well, you know, Foucault's as a sort of knowledge power, I mean, that little slip we all make between knowledge and control, knowledge and power. But uh, so I think that those arguments have become, they're more familiar in, in that education sociology discussion. You know, now that I've been in the field of education for a couple of years and, you know, you start doing all these reviews for, for journals, it's sort of, part of the process, I guess. Um, it is surprising to realize how many people still cite people like Bourdieu and uh, not as many Bernstein, I would say, or Young, but Bourdieu, it's like, it's sort of, you know, it's kind of unbelievable. It's permission, it's almost permission to proceed. And uh, it's like, you know, I think you could attach his name to almost any type of problem and people might nod. In fact, with um, some of my graduate students, we're starting up a a reading group called Read Before You Sight, and our first author, <laughs> we're going back to read something like Outline of a Theory of Practice, partly because there are these coded ways in which a lot of sociological argument is driven, and the new sociology of education is part of that encoded signposting way. Like, yeah, I know what that is. It's to do with, you know, knowledge, class, power, I don't know, whatever, inequality. Right, sight, and Bourdieu has become, you know, the poster boy for that. And you know, I must been extraordinarily influenced by Bourdieu, no doubt about it. Nevertheless, the ideas are complicated, <laughs> and they need slow, you know, yeah, yeah, understanding why certain theorists take off and others don't. Of course, is another question, but an important one. Yeah, and, and how the field sort of gets created and. It is interesting, and you, it is signposting. I wonder how much the ideas, and, and maybe you hinted that at this earlier, about how the ideas sort of take a life of their own. And so the people citing Bordeaux today aren't necessarily engaged in the same, I don't know, like debates that he might have been at the time, and are just sort of attaching his, you know, the in-text citation and habitus and sort of moving on. And, you know, you just wonder to what extent is there an understanding of, of that longer history of and the debates that he was involved in and the conversation that is still going on is, as you're sort of saying, even if it's taking different shapes. Yeah, great observation, I think, because I've been mulling over this, yeah, how it is that, you know, what ideas do that, Sarah Ahmed, you know, what, what does something do? It goes out into the world, it continues to have effects beyond or in addition to what the concept itself is trying to do. It does something else, right? But one of the more, I'd say, risky and unintended dangers perhaps of this idea of the conceptual toolbox, right? 
and many people attribute that to Foucault, whatever, is that it's like the lolly bag. And you can go in and you think, oh, I think I might take a bit of this and I might take a bit of that. And they're abstracted abstractions, if you know. <laughs> and then they can be populated. You know, people around, you know, they can be put into different things. And so you under, you take the concept is taken rather than the argument from which the concept emerges. Going back to the question of how we keep follow the history of ideas rather than simply the end point. I do think that is something that the arguments developed in knowledge and control and in those sociologists sort of associated broadly with the new sociology of education also laying the ground for because I do see it as a very much a more historical sociology, a more historical sociological way of thinking about education, the ways in which knowledge come, you know, the way in which you make a problem, the ways in which uh, knowledge is organised, has power or not, or authority, they are framed in these discussions far more quite historically. And I think that's a valuable insight to hold on to for when we are thinking about sociological work today. I would totally love to join that reading group, by the way. That sounds really, really good. I mean, cause that's what you want, right? To engage with the texts, you know, in the primary texts, but then potentially situate them in the history in which they were written and the debates that they were engaged in. And that that is so hugely important to then think about how these concepts might change over time or work in this particular time or this particular context. I just love that idea. Uh, you know, and so if you're a PhD student, you should sign up for that. I guess, you know, to, to sort of end, I as I was reading the pieces in the journal and thinking about this conversation, I kept wondering, is it possible to think of more recent works in the field of sociology of education that in 50 years time from today, people might reflect back on and say, this has had massive impact in the field. Like, in other words, what's the new, new sociology of education, right? Like, are there people, like, can we point to any work that could be as influential as Michael Young's edited collection was? So, yeah, respond to that question about are there books that might be comparably influential and cutting through. So perhaps I cannot think of one immediately, but I have two thoughts about that. One is that increasingly you might say that sociology of education has more porous boundaries. And so books that become and ideas that become influential in that field come from all over the place. Right? So they kind of look outwards in a way. Maybe that's positive and maybe that was always the case. But I feel that, so when you're looking at thinking of books that might be very influential in the sociology of education, you know, there's huge sort of theorists like, you know, you might say, well, as we're saying, Butler, uh, Bourdieu or Butler or Foucault, all those big people, but they've actually sort of come in and adapted and brought into discussions in the sociology of education. So there's that. But the other one is whether, in fact, authors set out in that same manifesto way. I think if we're looking back, say, a decade or 10 or 15 years ago, when the huge turn to understand mobilities and globalization, I think there were some very, very influential books at that point. And, you know, they're trying Saskia's essence. And I mean, thinking locally, yes, Fazal Rizvi and Bob Lingard, thinking here, like, so these were very influential. And many of them have been reissued and they continue to resonate. 
And they were really, I think what's distinctive about them, they were trying to understand a contemporary phenomenon, which in a way is what knowledge and control is trying to do. They were not trying to attach a theory to something. They were trying to make sense of really transforming social phenomenon and its impact on education. So I think for me, I'd be looking for books with that understanding the present with a more, if you like, eclectic, almost open way of approaching that theoretically. That would be a really great counterpoint to the book club that you're starting, right? You look at sort of contemporary, you know, historical texts and read them, the key texts in the field, but then you try and identify contemporary books that are dealing with contemporary issues and trying to theorize them rather than apply a theory to some issue today. I think that's a really great way to think about it. Well, Julie McLeod, thank you so much for joining Freshhead. Really a pleasure to talk. And, uh, you know, I really just love that point counterpoint in the journal. Well, thank you so much, Will. It's been great conversations. Well, it's been enjoyable conversations for me to have with you. Thanks very much. Julie McLeod is a professor at the University of Melbourne. You can read the set of essays she edited on the new sociology of education in the journal Curriculum Perspectives. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not FreshEd, which takes no institutional position. If you liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Freshhead's team includes Fatih Akhtas, Obafemi Nkunle, Annabella Afroboteng, Phyllis Che Mensah, and Jose Neto. Original music for Freshhead was created by Digital Primate. Freshhead is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of NORAG, the Shakhtab Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Freshhead by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.